This podcast is proud to be part of the Blueberry Network. That's blueberry with no ease dot com. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Transpersonal Radio with Angela Lynn Gibson. Remember, your thoughts upload your reality. Think wisely and always prepare to ignite. Welcome, Welcome to Transpersonal Radio. Transpersonalradio.com. Real talk for real life. Inspiring podcasts. Exploring personal empowerment. empowerment. And transformation. Through parapsychology, spirituality, and how your thoughts upload, upload your reality. And now your host, Angela, Angela L. Gibson. First of all, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to my loyal listeners who have stayed with me throughout the years. Welcome to all you new listeners. I've been producing Transpersonal Radio since 2010, not without challenges for sure, but I'm proud that I'm in the sixth year of Transpersonal Radio and it continues to get better every year. I'm going to ask my listeners to do me a favor. If you find value in this podcast, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, or download the iPhone app or Android app. And please, share this radio show with anyone you think may find it helpful, thought-provoking, or interesting. Also, please leave a great review for me on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker, as that will help the reputation of the show and get it recognized by a wider audience. There's a lot of work that goes into creating and producing a podcast and radio show. Here's the thing, folks. Over the years, I've had some really amazing guests on this show who speak from their core, who get real, who speak from a place of authenticity and integrity. These guests bring their A-game, providing you with quality content that can really make your life better. So by telling everyone you know about Transpersonal Radio and getting the word out, these guests really can make the world a better place. Thanks again for listening. So Transpersonal Radio listeners, it is a real treat to have today's guest on the show. I'm really looking forward to this interview and spending some quality time with Isis Jade. I've known Isis for many years, and we've agreed that we definitely must come from the same soul pod, the same soul family. And I know you are going to find her as amazing, charming, accomplished, caring, and captivating as I do. Isis Jade is an inspirational author, clairvoyant, intuitive speaker, advocate of victims of human trafficking, and a women, children, and animal rights activist. She is the author of several books and frequently describes her work as divine downloads and tapping into infinite intelligence. Isis has experienced near death and the kind of violent trauma that no human being should have to face. Abducted and held prisoner by human trafficker for nearly six months, Isis' story of captivity and torture is just one that I don't think a lot of people can even begin to understand. And here's the thing. She not only escaped that situation and survived that situation, but she is now thriving. And she's going to share with us tonight a little bit about that escape and the beginning of a decade-long healing journey. Battling with severe health problems doctors believed would kill her before the age of 35, along with the frustration in her struggles with brain damage, depression, 
debilitating fear and complex PTSD. Everything seemed to be conspiring against her. Yet Isis refused to accept insurmountable odds and that she would simply have to cope with these issues for the rest of her life. Instead, Isis embarked on a quest that took her around the world, meeting healers, shamans, monks, and teachers from all cultures and walks of life before finally discovering the miraculous healing power of delight. Her story is a remarkable testimony to the human spirit's ability to preserve, excuse me, to persevere against all odds. Isis has literally overcome overwhelming odds and then she began working in the corporate world. For over 15 years, she was a Fortune 500 business consultant across a number of industries. Her clients have included Dictaphone, WebEx, Microsoft, AT&T, and Singular, as well as countless startups and first-round fund companies. Today, Isis is a renowned master intuitive speaker, author, and soul guide. She works with people who are called to transform their trauma into their message of hope with the purpose of elevating and transforming our planet. Isis is the author of several books, including Delight, An Enlightened Path to Transforming Your Life, Spontaneously, and Your Mission, I'm Possible, Discovering Your Soul Purpose and Mission in Life. She has also co-founded a nonprofit charity organization called A Child Unchained, dedicated to ending child sex trafficking in the hardest-hit countries of the world. This 100% volunteer-run program has already successfully funded three schools and liberated nearly a 1,000 children from trafficking situations. Her simple yet profoundly insightful teachings continue to enamor and touch people around the world. She reveals simple yet effective strategies that anyone can use to transform fear into courage, build a foundation of inner guidance and soul purpose, find the messages and gifts in the center of pain, reclaim your divinity and dignity, and experience profound joy in the world around you. Isis demonstrates an uncanny set of remarkable intuitive gifts that allow her to see the people and organizations she works with in a very unique way. Her unconditional love, capacity for compassion, her gentle voice, and her enthusiasm captivates audiences all around the world. Isis, welcome, 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 and thank you so much for joining us. I'm so looking forward to sharing your insights and wisdom with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much, Angela. I'm so excited to be here. I just, I'm, I'm thrilled. I can't tell you. I've known you for so many years, and, you know, when I was in Northern California, and you know, it's crazy. We talked about this before. I don't, it's, I don't actually remember how we first met. It seems like I've just always known you. We've always known each other. I can't remember either. We just <laughs> always connected and we've always just supported each other and just we have many lifetimes back that I do recall. Without <laughs> so. question, without question. So, of course, as you know, Isis, uh, on the show, we're all about finding solutions and thriving beyond challenges and setbacks. And you're just really in a position to speak to that. We're also about keeping things real. And we know the greatest successes are often born of immeasurable suffering. You yourself are a survivor of human trafficking. Tell us a little bit about that story and, and uh, what what happened. Well, um, it was about 18 years ago. I was the age of 22. I was working in Las Vegas as a project manager. 
Um, and I had um, met a client for some drinks, um, and we had just finished up a conversation. And I glanced at my watch and remembered that it was time I needed to go. I got to pick up my children from the nanny. And I had uh, walked out um, to get into my car. And for some reason, it wouldn't start, which was pretty strange because it was a fairly new car. And I was a little concerned about that because this wasn't a neighborhood I was familiar with. And I walked back into the pub and there was was one that um, our company frequently took clients to. There was a coworker in there with, and I thought he was with somebody else, um, but can't really recall. And he, um, you know, he asked me what was going on and I said, my car wouldn't start. And he said, well, why don't I give you a ride home? Now he had just started working with the company. I didn't know anything about him. We never really worked together, really communicated much with each other. And this is kind of where I tell people, this is where you really need to listen to your intuitive hits or your guidance. Because mm, yes. <laughs> had I listened to that, I don't think that would have ever happened to me. I had this weird little tingle, this little pull in the back of my head that I remember, you know, just feeling weird about the whole situation. And I said, no, no, I'll just call and get a taxi and, um, you know, I'll find my way home. Don't worry about it. I have to pick up my kids anyways. And he he came up and he said, no, no, seriously, I'll, I'll let me help me out. You know, I know I'm new to the company and you don't know me, but, you know, um, you know, I'll, let me just give you a ride home. It's not that far, you know, it's not out of, out of distance or anything. And I'll, you know, you can pick up your kids on the way. And I said, and I was just like, oh, well, you know, I'm being silly. You know, this is a person who works at my company. You know, I should just, okay, fine, whatever. You know, mm. what could go wrong? What you know? could go wrong? And yeah. so I just kind of, right, I just kind of um, kind of brushed it off. And I said, okay, sure, why not? Um, okay. And that's what, all I remember. Um, I don't recall what happened. Um, I just recall waking up in a room that was not my own and I was chained to a bed Mm. and I remember being really bruised and really dizzy and really sick to my stomach. And so I assumed I had been drugged and I had no idea what happened to me. And, um, I had been held in there for months. And what I came to understand is that this person used this um, job as a front. He was a um, drug dealer and a trafficker of women and um, also was involved in some arms deals as well. Oh so it was a very, very dangerous person. Um, I lived in, um, he held me in a pitch black dark cell for a long time. Um, and I was um, tortured as, brutalized, it was raped, and there was a lot of psychological terror that um, went into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he threatened the lives of my children, um, lives of my family, if I did not comply with everything. Um, it, I tried to escape many times. Um, I'd always just barely get out of a situation only to be dragged back in and beaten or strangled. Um, and um, I had um, I had been electrocuted. Um, I had been um, at one point in time. I beat up this beat up one of my captors with an iron poker because I didn't want to be raped again. I just couldn't handle any more 
And so I picked up an iron poker that I found, and I don't even know where it came from. I, it wasn't in that room before. And I remember picking up and just beating this person with it, trying to get away. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he grabbed me um, by my neck and he strangled me. And he threw me across the room and he strangled me until I left my body. Um, and I can remember the feeling of being literally pulled out of my body and looking down and watching this scene unfold. Um, and it was pretty traumatizing, Angela, I could tell you that. To say the least, my goodness. He left the room. He left the room. I remember he left the room. I was over my body. Um, and I, um, he came back in the room with garbage bags and a blanket and duct tape. So I assumed that he believed that I was dead. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, oh, no, that's not how this is going to end. And pulling, I don't know what happened, but I pulled back into my body and I sat back up. I felt very confused and very disoriented. And I remember very clearly he was so startled by the fact that I sat up. He slammed himself up against the wall and it looked like he had lost all color in his face. And he said, you're supposed to be dead. And then he left the room and just left me there. Wow. And it was a couple months later when I was finally able to get out. Um, a, um, normally, I was under lock and key and under surveillance at all times. Um, or tied up in this little dark cell where I didn't have any room to turn around. Um, I was just chained to, to a wall and just left there. And um, so it was very strange that the door would be unlocked. And something, um, someone told me to check the door. And I did. And the door was open. And I walked out. And I saw just kind of light guiding me to the next room. And I didn't really remember exactly where the entrance was to the door because by then I had had so much damage done um, to my body. I, um, they had um, put my head through a wall once. They had hit my head and broke my nose against the toilet. Um, I had many, many concussions, um, the hospital said, when I finally got out. So it was very, very dizzy, very disoriented. Um, and I just followed followed this kind of guiding light and ended up in another room where he was sitting. And he kept repeating, all of this just fell apart. All of this just fell apart. And I remember just looking down at him. There was a gun on the table beside me on, in the, the room. And he was sitting there and he looked up at me. And he said, you know, I could kill you right now. And I just shrugged my shoulders, and I don't know what came over me, but um, I just sat down with him. And I asked him what happened, and he said, they're investigating, and um, you should go before you're killed. Wow. So I got up, and I left. Wow. And um, it was... I, it took me a long time to figure out exactly where I was located at. I was lost. It took me a couple hours to get my bearings straight to find, figure out where I was. And I was barefoot. It was very, very hot. It was in the middle of summer. Um, I hadn't had any food in almost a week. I hadn't drank water in a couple of days. It was very, very dehydrated. 
middle of Las Vegas in the summer. Mm-hmm. And so everything's scorching hot. And all I could keep in mind was I'm getting out. I'm going to find my kids and I'm going to be safe again. And I found my way back to my nanny's house. And she found me in the bushes, unconscious. You know, I have to say, it's just, your story is so incredible because, again, I mean, first of all, just that you survived that is, is just, I'm speechless to, to bear witness to that kind of tragedy and trauma. And one of the points that I'd like to underscore is a lot of times when people think about human trafficking, they think about third world countries or somewhere far away or, you know, oh, this doesn't really affect me. It's not part of my world. And, it doesn't affect us. Right. right. And, and this happened mm-hmm. right in the United States, right in one of the most popular mm-hmm. holiday destinations in Las Vegas. So it really brings mm-hmm. it home. It does. It does. We have a a huge trafficking problem in this country. We have 600,000 uh, children and women that are trafficked out of this country every year. And you, you talk and that's about... a so, conservative estimate. Some of the other really shocking statistics you talk about I'd like to share with our listeners is uh, you say that less than 1% of trafficking victims survive slavery and escape. Less than 1%. So yes. sit on that for a minute. And yes, yet, but- even those that do escape still might not survive once they're free. What's going on there? Well, a lot of it has to do with um, the effects, the psychological effects um, that slavery has on, especially in, in, in a sex trafficking um, situation. The precipitation rate of women who um, escape, if you end up in what we've seen as statistically in some of the nonprofits that I've worked with, the recidivation rate um, for human trafficking victims is exceedingly high, meaning they go back into either prostitution or drug dealing or things like that because this is something that they are familiar with. Mm-hmm. A large part of it has to do with the fact that once you've been in a position where someone has taken complete control over your life, makes all the decisions for you, you you have no control over your own self, your own identity. Everything is everything is done to you. You mm-hmm. have no ability to, to do anything for yourself. So it creates a fractured sense of self-identity or self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates this self-perpetuating philosophy of, um, that we call learned helplessness. It's a very, very destructive um, in, in terms of mentality, destructive in terms of psyche, destructive in terms of the soul. Um, so a person that comes out of that, if they're not provided with um, the right mode of assistance and guidance to get them back into a place where they can make their own choices, make their own decisions, make their own, and learn how to make those decisions and choices in a place of self-empowerment as opposed to victimization, they tend to re-victimize themselves because that was what was known. I also think that it has a lot to do with um, the, the the self-esteem and self-worth mm-hmm. and, and value of self because once you've been trafficked and sold as a as a sex slave, it really affects you socially um, in, in the social conscious structure. Like, I am not clean. I'm an unclean person. Sure. This thing happened to me, and now mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not worth anything. So it's yeah. about it. it. It completely devalues you at sure. um, at every level. It, it's similar so it to, to this, it's similar to uh, 
those who have suffered sexual abuse by family members, incest, any type of, of sexual predation. And, yeah. but, but for, for what you experienced with the human trafficking, it, there's another level there because you become indoctrinated. There's a, there's an indoctrination process that occurs where your very self is broken down and deconstructed and you are reconstructed into this thing that you're not, but it becomes your identity. Exactly. Mm-hmm. An object. You become mm-hmm. an object, mm-hmm. not a pe- not a person. You're an right. object. Right. And therefore, I can see how the cycle would continue because you believe at your core at that point you have no value, you have no worth, you're not worthy. Exactly. It's devastating. Exactly. Let's talk a bit and about... And then on top oh, of ahead. that... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and then on top of that is the, the um, debilitating terror that you'll be found mm-hmm. again. Oh, There's a lot gosh. of these traffickers, even once you cut out, mm-hmm. they're still looking for you because if you ever reveal anything about them, you know, it, there's there's a lot there for mm-hmm. somebody to overcome. I Yeah, I that that's something I've never experienced. I could never imagine the amount of terror involved in what you described. My heart goes out to you completely. Let's talk a bit about complex PTSD. It it was once believed that PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder was something only suffered by soldiers exposed to combat during war. As I've discussed on other shows, we now know that PTSD is relative and situational and can be experienced by anyone who has suffered trauma or life and death situations. Can you explain for our audience what complex PTSD is and the difference between that and traditional PTSD and why it's so important that this become more well-known. Yeah, it's actually, a, there's actually a huge distinctive differences that have a lot to do with what we had just talked about, about the breakdown of the psyche and the breakdown of self-identity. Whereas PTSD is generally isolated to one specific incident or a specific series of isolated incidents that they can provide a certain therapeutic protocol to help you re-experience that thing or that trauma in a way that can actually desensitize it with complex PTSD. There's literally thousands of triggers, potentially hundreds of different scenarios and experiences, especially if you're talking about children, because complex PTSD now is seen more and more with early childhood and trauma and um, debilitating lifelong patterns of trauma. Mm-hmm. So what they originally thought of as borderline personality disorder, they're now seeing that there are definitely certain traits of of breakdown of psyche and breakdown of self-identity that they're finding in PTSD victims that do not respond to traditional PTSD therapies and therapeutic protocol. So the way to 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 get over complex PTSD is more more about dialectical therapy. It's more about um, kind of exploring the identity of self, exploring the identity of safety, because a lot of times complex PTSD um, victims don't have a good, strong foundation of what it means to be safe. And so everything in their world is a potential for danger Mm -hmm. because, and, and they identify something that something bad could happen to me again, because I've already lived through something really, really traumatic, but many, many things that are really traumatic. So, so the brain, the psyche develops this um, hyper-vigilant, hyper-reactive um, set of, um, how would I say, protective mechanisms mm-hmm. 
that are actually really debilitating and really damaging because they're not based back again in healthy um, choice frameworks and healthy self-empowerment frameworks. It's actually based on very debilitated frameworks because that individual did not learn or has forgotten how Mm -hmm. to create that um, space for trust and stuff. Whereas with soldiers who've experienced post-traumatic stress syndrome, sometimes it's also complex, sometimes it's not. Um, It depends on, one, how long they've been in a situation, but also, two, um, how destructive their early childhood processes were or how healthy their childhood processes are that enables somebody to kind of create that paradigm and that structure for getting them over that trauma. Right. And I think it's really important to point out that when one is in a state of complex PTSD, you are constantly in that state of fight or flight. You're in that heightened sense of survival, which means you're releasing a lot of chemicals, not least of which is cortisol, stress hormones, adrenaline, uh, norepinephrine. And so you're really doing damage to your body physically And then as you pointed out, Isis, when you've got the emotional component in there as well, you can see how that can become such a destructive pattern. Right. And with with complex PTSD, because you brought this um, up on the the chemical processing, um, there's something that's called self-regulation. In PTSD, there is still some self-regulation. But in complex PTSD, we generally seem to find that individuals who have suffered from prolonged bouts of captivity, enslavement, or severe childhood trauma, they have no ability to self-regulate. Part of that has to do with the chronic stress that they've been under for months, if not years. So that triggers their adrenals to constantly flush those stress hormones that you're talking about because there's actually no no stabilizing force in the brain, um, in the amygdala and the hippocampus area of the brain for regulation to exist. So it's about teaching how to create that self-regulation. Very good. Very good. So there is hope. <laughs> Your story, <laughs> right? Your story, Isis, seriously, is so profound. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It is, it's heartbreaking, but it is, it's also inspirational. And that is really, as my listeners probably know by now, one of my greatest curiosities is how some people are able to overcome trauma, abuse, even atrocities. Some can't even imagine like you've been through ISIS while others seem to succumb and, and they just, they don't make it either mentally or physically. So, Isis, share with us how you found the power to overcome everything you went through to become who you are today. Tell us about this life-changing spiritual experience. Well, um, I, when I got out, um, I really thought that I could just be who I was before. And I just didn't really take into consideration the, the, the trauma that actually just broke me down. And once I had, um, I had experienced a series of these really horrific emotional breakdowns at work, a series of really horrific um, physical breakdowns, health breakdowns, um, it seemed like every time I was moving one step forward, I was making three, four steps backwards. I was, and I was just so determined. I had this like steel resolve determination that there is nothing that I can't overcome. And I'm going to psychiatrist after psychiatrist, therapist after therapist, and they're all just telling me the best you can hope for is cope. And I got to the point where I absolutely hated that word, cope. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
<laughs> it just seems so limiting to me. And so I was so determined. I said, no, I can't just cope because here I'm dealing with this this deep, deep debilitating suicidal depression that I, I just can't get rid of, this humiliation, the, the flashbacks and the terror. And the, I mean, the terror was so bad, Angela, that I would vomit five, six times before walking into work when I'd have to know for a fact that I was going to be facing a room full of men in the boardroom mm -hmm. to have to present to them. I just couldn't function. I was mm -hmm. not a functional person. And so it was, it was that I, and so I, I got so frustrated with the Western medicine and with Western um, philosophy of therapy that I started just looking for any answer anywhere. And I started working with um, a shamanic healer. Um, I met a, um, a tantric guru. Um, and part of that was because I wanted to get over my all my sexual inhibitions that happened as a result because I just, I, I couldn't function as a person in relationship. I couldn't function at work. I couldn't function anywhere. So it was like, I need to, I need to fix this. I need to resolve this. So I got on this bandwagon of fixing and healing and mm -hmm. fixing and healing. And you, mm -hmm. if you do that, you're always finding something else that needs to be fixed and healed. Yes. And, <laughs> and anyway, so I was, um, I was working with some horses. Um, it's one of my passions is horses. And one of the things that I learned about working with horses was that, you know, if you don't show up to the arena or to the work, with a horse, no matter how damaged they were, if you don't show up with any preconceptions and expectations that they're going to behave a certain way, 99% of the time, they're actually pretty well, you know, they, they can get through their issues pretty quickly. And because of this problems that I experienced and the tragedy that I experienced, I seem to track a lot of really damaged horses. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I started working with these damaged horses, and it was it became very therapeutic for me because I would see them overcome so much and become these whole healthy beings. These were beings that vets said they were too dangerous and had to be mm. put down, or, or people said, don't, don't go into that stall. That horse will tear you apart. And literally in like two months of working with me, they were as docile as lambs and you could put children on them, things wow. like that, you know? And so that experience sort of helped me kind of come back into the space of this moment now that if you don't have a preconceived notion and so that's a bit of a tangent, but that, that was what led me into discovering this idea that if we're in the space of the moment, then that's all we have. Right. But it wasn't enough for me. It just didn't seem to solve a lot of problems because we still bring our past back forward mm -hmm. with us into our now. We still bring all our stuff with us forward into now. Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand how could we drop all that. And what happened to me was I was in the middle of um, a huge business loss. I, um, I lost everything. I lost my house. I lost everything. And I just felt like I had sabotaged myself all over again to face all of this insurmountable stuff. Why am I doing this to myself over and over again? Why is this pattern happening? I felt so, so depressed. And I felt like I'd let my whole family down. Nothing was going right. I sat down and I, I literally sat down in the bathroom that night. And I was actually thinking of killing myself. And I couldn't believe that after all I'd gone through, after all I'd done, I'm going to kill myself, really? And I'm looking at a bottle of pills in one hand, and I'm looking in my other hand, it was empty. And I just sat there and I looked at this, and I'm thinking to myself, what am I even doing here? Here I am, a, a woman who's gone through so much, so much tragedy. Did I really end up here at this moment just to 
just to throw my life away, mm-hmm. really? Because this is the exact same thing I've seen every other woman who's gone through something similar to me end up doing mm-hmm. to themselves, killing themselves, mm-hmm. either through drugs or alcohol or suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm, and I stood up and I looked in the mirror and I just looked in the mirror for the longest time and I said to myself, I love you. I love you. I love you. Mm-hmm. I love you. I love you. But even that wasn't enough. Like I kept hearing it, but I couldn't feel mm-hmm. it. And then something lit up inside of me, and I said, no, it's not that I love you. It's that I utterly delight in being here now. And I delight in my children, and I delight in my family, and I delight in everything that, that, everything that life has brought to me, all the good, all the evil, everything. I would never have been able to experience the amazing joy and love I have for my kids at the level I do now. If I hadn't experienced that tragedy back then, and I looked at myself, I'm like, I delight in life. Why am I doing this to myself? And boom, it was like this whole epiphany woke up and that felt myself whole up all from within. And I just started through <laughs> the pills away. I, flushed I just threw them all away, flushed them down the toilet and no more, no more. I'm never doing this again. And I just started dancing and laughing. I ran out, ran out into the living room, found my kids. And I said, I had, I had an epiphany. I have mm. an idea. And then I walked, ran back into my bedroom, turned on the the, um, the the screen, and I started reading the sutras that I had used to read from my tantra guru. And they're everywhere. There was this idea of delight, you know, delighting in the world, delighting in the universe, and everything will come to you. And and there's this like powerful whole force that the whole universe was created in order to delight itself. And I started reading more, and I started getting out this and. Five years later, long story short, <laughs> I ended up with this download, this divine download of all of this amazing ideas around living a very divine life filled with delight and joy and prosperity. That's beautiful. And so for you, at your very, very darkest moment, because I have to argue that all the trauma you went through I would still say your darkest moment was that moment where you were thinking about taking your own life because that's a whole different level yeah. of, of pain and darkness. And, and for you, the spark, the epiphany was realizing there's an entire universe still to delight in, that there are still beauty, there's still hope. Absolutely, absolutely. So you, at, at this point, you're, you've gone on a spiritual journey around the world. You've been seeking out healers, shamans, gurus, teachers, and, at, and you've been blessed by countless nuns, monks, gurus, spiritual teachers. Yes. And they've said... Yes, I'm very humbled to say that. Yeah. It's amazing. They, they said you are a divine embodiment of sacred goddess energy. How has that affected you? And, yes. and and to me, more importantly, what does that mean for others now as you go forward in your life and, and you interact with others? You know, I was so um, appalled by that when my um, one of my teachers had called me that. I ran out um, and left, and I didn't come back to him for a few weeks. Because I couldn't process the fact that 
anything about me back then was divine, mm. much less be an embodiment of something like that. So that was really difficult for me to receive. And I, not, not a few weeks later did a monk call me, a Francescan monk, and he got me on the phone, which is a very rare thing to be able to do back then. I, I didn't answer the phone if I didn't know the number ever because I didn't know who would be on the other line. Um, and he got me on the phone. He said, as soon as I said, hello, this is Isis. What can I do for you? He said, now I know why they delight in you. And I dropped the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and then I picked it up. And I said, I'm sorry, who is this? And he told me his name, and he says, I'm a Francescan monk. I'm from Europe. I have, I was given your name, and I was told to seek you out and give you a message, and I've been looking for you for months. Wow. And I said, you, you're what? You're who? And then and he's like, you have to realize that, um, that no matter how bad your history was, it doesn't matter. You have to be pulled by your soul. There's, there's higher work here for you to do there's more for you to do here there's mm. a reason for you to be here now and um he said you are the divine embodiment and of this this the feminine that we have been seeking to 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 um re- reawaken in this world and if you are part of that you're part of that so don't forget that and then he starts telling me about my history and i'm like how do you know anything about this Mm-hmm. And he said, I was told. And I said, who told you? And he gave me a name. And I was like, so shocked because it was the name of, and I'm going to say this, it may or may not you know, be relevant here, but he actually said the name of my spirit guide. And mm. that made me drop the phone a second time. <laughs> <laughs> nobody knows that name. Wow, that's pretty <laughs> intense. my family. Yeah. So, and then he says, and then he said, you have, you know, you have two very powerful daughters and all of this stuff. And I was pretty secretive back then. I was really shocked. And I was mm. like, okay, this has got to be a stalker or some kind of like crazy person. But actually I did some research on him. I'm researching him while I'm talking on the phone. I'm like, oh my God, you're really real. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you're really a real person. You really are. Long. And he said, yes, I really am. Uh-huh. He said, I want to bless you. And then he said a prayer over me and my family. And one thing he told me before he got off the phone was, no matter what, you cannot run away from yourself. You cannot run away from who you truly are. Mm-hmm. He said, all this time, you have worn so many masks, so many layers, so many this, so many that, that the fact of the matter is, you are who you are. And that's mm-hmm. why they could not kill you. And that's why you won't be destroyed by that. You are wow. who you are. And, and so then I went back to my teacher and I said I'm sorry I didn't understand (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of who you are you have a natural compassion and deep love for others despite everything you've been through your core character who you are you naturally just you love people how did you transform the anger about what happened to you into this profound loving energy you embody you know, it, it it began with a choice. Like anger has this debilitating effect on our health and our psyche, mm-hmm. and but it's a it's a very addictive emotion and it's a very gratifying emotion, right? It, it gives us power 
to overcome certain things. And I definitely used anger early on to power me through, to force me to, to change and shift and heal myself certain, in certain areas. But the thing is, is if you rely on that anger for too long, it can just consume you and destroy you. Absolutely. One of the things that happened um, was in 2012, it's a very awakening time period. Um, I was at in um, Chinese New Year with my um, ex-husband's family, and I had met a woman there. And we started talking, and come to find out we had many similar interests. She's 20 years older than I am. Excuse me. And she started talking about, you know, some of this huge problem that um, Cambodia and Vietnam and a few other countries are facing around child sex trafficking. And the minute she said those first three words, I broke down into tears. Mm. And she said, and up until then, I was just, I was just, I was just a very strong woman. You know, I can just do things, you know. And here I am breaking down into tears in front of her. And she said, darling, what's wrong? So I pulled her into a room and I told her my whole story. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, my gosh, uh, we need we definitely have a purpose here. We definitely came together for a reason. And that day was the day that a child in chain, our nonprofit charity, was born. And I realized that that was a way for me to transi- transmute anger into love and transmute and channel something to create goodness in the world and to create joy and, and, and give people and children a second chance at life and, and try to do something really profound in this world about changing the odds. Wonderful. That's beautiful. And we're going to talk a little bit more about your charity in just a bit. Let's talk a little bit about uh, going. So there's something that I call viral patterning that happens to to those who've suffered abuse or to those who are in cycles of certain behavior patterns. And this viral programming can be passed down through lineage, through DNA, through environmental, familial patterns. So for you, you had a certain pattern. You had a certain pattern, uh, a history of abusive relationships before reclaiming yourself at the soul level. So let's talk a little bit about how you were able to reclaim your divinity and come back into your self-empowerment and change the pattern of abuse in your life. It was a very good question. Um, You know, I would say that it was, um, it was a progressive um, process as I started to, engage in the process of um, more self-love as opposed to self-loathing um, mm-hmm. and start to value and honor myself as a, as a being of worth and value who has a place to claim here in this world, as opposed to somebody who is worthless or valueless, except for what price somebody has paid for me. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a completely, sh- it was a complete shift. And then I realized that you can't be in a place of, of true um, self-love and for the longest time, I was raised that self-love was selfish, right? Yes. So, you know, and, and a lot of us women, we have a problem with self-love and, and taking care of ourselves and not martyring ourselves at, at the altar of our family or our career or this or that or all of it. You know, Absolutely. And losing our identity and relationship and losing ourselves in relationship. Mm-hmm. And I had that pattern very much so, very deeply ingrained. And I, it's a generational pattern. It's a pattern that flowed through both sides of the lineages in my family. Absolutely. Um, so part of that process for me was 
um, doing some cord clearing, doing some clipping, doing some um, familial um, diving in with my ancestors and communing with them and um, bringing that knowledge and wisdom forward into my life. And then also the the ability to learn that it's okay, one, for me to say no, and also establish very clear boundaries about what I will and will not accept and tolerate in a real in a divine relationship with me. Excellent. And that was one of the biggest turning points for me was this I won't tolerate any longer in a divine relationship because I'm in a divine relationship with myself first. And because of that, I have to treat myself with love because I am divine. I'm part of the infinite. If the infinite is divine and I'm a facet of that, then I, I don't exist as an I. But as a part of this whole, I have to respect it. And therefore, I, I chose to change the dynamic of the patterns of relationship I engaged in. And that did mean some very difficult conversations with family and with um, friends and with um, you know, my now ex-husband. <laughs> it really, yeah, it really is difficult because no you have to... You people. So I always say you train people how to treat you. You train people how to treat you. And when you start changing the rules because you find your self-worth or you find your value, you find your divinity, it's very difficult because people are used to things being a certain way and all of a sudden they're not. And so it's a really interesting process that happens. It's it takes courage on behalf of of yourself when you're doing that and you'll find that there will be people who do go away and yet there will be people who come into your life so it's a beautiful process really it is an interesting process of ebb and flow Mm -hmm. and the other thing was that I also had to take responsibility for was um, self-expression fully Mm -hmm. Mm self-expressed, which was something that was very, very difficult for me because of what I had gone through. I had severe brain damage. I had to learn all sorts of things all over again after that was part of the the, the history of healing for me. Like I had to learn how to tie my shoes again because I couldn't remember how to do that. Mm -hmm. I had to learn how to write full sentences again. I had to teach myself how to memorize things again just to teach myself how to learn again so as a result I felt totally constricted in my throat in my throat chakra mm-hmm. and totally restricted in other areas of self-expression and even though I wrote prolifically as a process of healing myself I did not speak prolifically I did not communicate um, vocally about my needs and wants and desires and so I allowed other people to just kind of overwhelm me with their needs and wants and desires. Mm-hmm. And as an empath, that's the tendency we have to do. You bet. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and we tend to forget our own self, our own core. Mm-hmm. And so when I started shifting that, all of a sudden, um, for example, in this um, relationship with my ex-husband, I had specific sets of needs that I needed met. And I started stating them cleanly and clearly and he was still in the manipulation process mm-hmm. of manipulating to get his needs met. And he could not process the fact that I could explicitly state, I'm sorry, I can't meet that need. And here's why, but this is what I need from you mm-hmm. going forward. So we can have conversations so we can have, you know, healthy medium. 
it's kind of interesting because what I what I like in this too with my clients is it's like when you're in when you're in trauma and you're in the middle of crisis or you're you you feel like you've been fractured you you're generally a train wreck and you generally attract other train wrecks yes <laughs> but if you aren't on the same healing path if you're not committed to the same healing path the same healing journey whereas generally if it's two people who are in train wrecks together but they he, they work together and mm-hmm. work together and partner together to heal those aspects of themselves it can be a very beautiful unfoldment but sometimes those train wrecks just keep wrecking each other wrecking into each other and it just so never true. solves the so, core issues and that, those are those patterns so, so true normally my radio show goes between 30 to 60 minutes but there's so much amazing information here with you isis that i'm i'm willing to keep going if you are uh, i'm willing to keep going <laughs> wonderful so we're going to take a couple minute break and then we're going to dive back in that sounds great wonderful
with Isis. We're going to dive in a little bit now and talk about some intuitive abilities because, hey, this wouldn't be transpersonal radio unless we dive into some intuitive stuff. So let's talk, Isis, about when you first realized you were highly sensitive and you had powerful intuitive clear abilities. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting because um, I've always had them ever since I can remember, as even as a small child, um, which made life very interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. I had, um, I had a near... Um, so according to, um, I don't have complete cognizance of this, but according to um, my family's neighbor growing up, um, I had nearly drowned at the age of four at a party that they held. And there was a backyard pool. And up until that point, I had never seen a full pool before. I'd never seen water like that before because we lived way out in the middle of the desert. Mm. And... Um, so apparently I was just completely enamored by the sparklies, which is typical for me. I really like sparkly things. Shiny, shiny. And so I, it was pretty and shiny and sparkly and dancy and blue. Blue is my favorite color. Mm. So, you know, it it, it all makes sense to me why I would tumble into the, into the water. Mm -hmm. Here's all I remember. I remember being in a bubble and I remember being held by um, two beings and they're just, we're just talking. I was like, and and I remember holding, holding him around his neck and, and tapping him and saying, is it time to go now? Is it time to go now? Mm. And he said, no, not yet. Uh, but if you really want to go, we can go. But I don't think that's a good idea for you. And then the bubble got popped, and suddenly I remember not being able to breathe, and that's all I remember. Mm. And um, oh, and floating. There's lots of floating. I did a lot of floating as a child. A lot of out of body floating experiences. A lot of astral traveling mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, my neighbor said they pulled that that they realized that I wasn't around and then they saw my body in the pool and they pulled me up and resuscitated me, got all the water out of my lungs and stuff. And then I, apparently I kept saying that I saw my family. I saw my family. And she thought, thought that was really strange because there was my family wasn't present. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and so she said, that was really weird that you kept saying that you saw your family. Mm. But apparently, according to my shaman, she says that I was, who I had met was my soul family and probably um, a couple of my spirit guides that day. So that was interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, so, so I've always seen things. I've always heard things. I've always had premoni- premonition abilities. Um, I remember going into school, um, like the biology class, and knowing exactly where everything was in the biology class and setting things up for labs and never having walked into that class before. Those things were the normal daily occurrences for me, but it really wigged other people out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can relate to that. Except, <laughs> yeah, and people would tell me they get really bad goosebumps by sitting next to me. They so, <laughs> you know, or start walking up to me and just start asking me questions, just randomly questions, and, and I would just answer them randomly and just or have a divine download for a message to give to somebody and just give it to them right there. 
And um, I've done that in a couple of boardrooms. That was very scary <laughs> for a couple of people. Sure. <laughs> well, yes, yes. I can, I can imagine. Um, but yeah. And my father always called it higher function. He always mm-hmm. believed that humans are evolving to be very higher functioning beings. Mm-hmm, my father was a NASA um, rocket engineer, rocket scientist. He managed the space shuttle program for 30 years. Wow. So he fully believed that we had these all these abilities. So he never, never eschewed them because that's in his mind. That's how he became, how he got to where he came from. Because my father never set foot in college, and yet he became this engineer who has so many patents for NASA. He's designed all these things, and he he would always just say, it's a divine download. Fantastic. It's out there. You just download it, and you answer it. It's not a big deal. See the patterns and solve the issue. That's that's amazing. (laughs) So for him, it was matter of fact. So, you know, that's that's, how we grew up. So that's that's how your dad used his downloads and his abilities and his business. How have you used your abilities to be successful in your business? Well, you know, a lot of, a large part of it um, for me was following kind of my dad's footsteps was um, for companies and stuff. I would just walk in. I could just see where the gaps were energetically in process or the gaps were energetically in a product that was, you know, not being built correctly and just solve those issues in my own business, I divinely download um, my work. I do a lot of automatic writing. I connect to um, source, um, receive messages, and share them. Um, if my clients come to me for readings or for private sessions or for some healing intensives, we, you know, I just look at their whole view. Um, I see um, a lot of symbols. I see energy. I see pretty much everything that's going on in their their sphere and all around them. And, we just have conversations about that stuff as it comes up and I can immediately tell when somebody is hiding or, or not revealing something because it's in their field, but they don't want to share it. So um, those sorts of things. Um, Let's see, how else do I use my gift pretty much every day in every way? Um, You know, making decisions. That was one of the other things I used to do is teach um, companies how to make more intuitive gut level decisions and rely less on data and more on what they intuitively felt. So we called these rapid business decision accelerators. So they'd bring a team in and part of the team building exercise was to get them to clear their minds and just kind of communicate from, from the space of gut and learn how to make decisions from that space and of being guided and being led by that. So it's a lot of fun. You know, and you know what's fascinating to me <laughs> about a- that? I, I have to ask you because that's, that's counterintuitive to what a, to corporate culture, which is we don't want any of that feeling nonsense. We don't want any of that get in touch with your feelings. We want hard data. We want numbers, <laughs> right? So, so it's fascinating to me that that you found companies receptive to that. I just I love that. I just that's great. Well, one of the first things I would tell people um, to my clients, um, and when I first meet them, I'd say, "Do you know?" what is the one single most important skill that 86% of the most successful CEOs, entrepreneurs, and executives attribute to their success? 86%. The world's most successful CEOs, entrepreneurs, and executives. Do you know what that one skill is? What is it? And they'd all look at me and go, no, what is it? Intuition. (laughs) (laughs) Learning to follow your intuition. (laughs) And they'd be like, where'd you get that data? And then I'd throw them the Harvard studies, the MIT studies, and all this other stuff. They'd be like, you know, 
okay, we need to talk. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> what I do is I balance the feminine with the masculine. You mm. back up this with the actual data that says here it is. I mean, nice. Richard Branson himself says he makes no business decision without having that intuitive gut level response. Fantastic. So if somebody like that does that, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, it's something you got to learn to do. Something there, so, right? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Let's dive a little bit deeper into how you use intuition and inner guidance to help you heal and become the teacher you are today. So we're going to shift it from corporate um, and we're going to go into just sort of more healer and teacher mentor. You know, it's kind of interesting because um, one of the things that I learned um, along the way was that the seeking for outside guidance and outside help was something that we do in order to heal or fix something that we believe is wrong with us. But when we start learning to listen to our intuition, learning to listen to our inner guidance, our inner wisdom, we start noticing that we are actually divinely guided to exactly what it is Mm. that we need for ourselves in that moment in time. Mm -hmm. One of the things, um, one of my, um, one of my, dear friends, who is also a very important um, influence in my life as a healer and a mentor, she taught me the ability to um, to just test and find those intuitive impulses very, very quickly. And that was really early on in my healing journey. And learning to use that really helped me know, like I could tell, kind of guide, getting guidance, which situation can be resolved by which you know, which therapeutic protocol or what should I work towards? What mm-hmm. should I learn? What do I need to expand myself in? What do I need to go towards? And it's interesting because normally the thing that we fear the most <laughs> or the thing that we despise the most, generally it's because it calls into that deeper core wound, original wound that mm-hmm. we have that we need to have filled. So sometimes we're like for me, I was afraid to speak about my story or speak about my truth. So I kept it all very corporate or I kept it all very <laughs> non-touchy-feely. <laughs> Keep that barrier up, right? Yes, yes. What, what was interesting to me, though, there was the minute I started dropping the barrier, that's when all the, the really great stuff came through. So for me, it's learning to trust. Really, it came back down to learning that, 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 trust, that trust myself, that I can keep myself safe. That just because of something horrible that happened to me does not mean that it's going to happen again. Mm. It's not validation for the future. It does not change. It does not get to choose my future. I get to choose my future. It does not get to choose my how. I get to choose my how. And I can be intuitively guided by making healthy choices based on my intuition and being led and guided by that rather than being led and guided by you know, oh, momentary impulses. Oh my gosh, another beer won't hurt. Or oh my gosh, another. Beer. You know what I yes. mean? Like that's what a lot of people do. Though, reacting. Right? Mm-hmm. So, reacting rather than proactive. Yes. And what I say is that everything is moderate. Everything is moderation. A beautiful, divine, balanced, healthy, happy life means that you get to indulge in everything, but in moderation. Experience beautiful. it in moderation. You know. I love it. So love it, love when it, love you. It. When you follow an opportunity to face a fear or face something that feels like it could be very, very scary or repelling to you, going into the center of that and finding that real pull as to the reason behind it, is it actually really dangerous or is it just something your mind has set up for you to be dangerous? So it's learning how to discern true, valid fear 
and true valid danger as opposed to, oh, that's just, I just don't want to go there. That's, that's, that's scary to me. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a great distinction. You, you teach people an approach called effortless meditation. And I have to tell you that already sounds great because, (laughs) because, okay, when I'm teaching my classes and I bring up meditation and I'm guilty of this as well, it definitely used to be. Oh my gosh, all I need is one more thing. I have to squeeze into my busy day. I do not have time to sit and meditate. So when I hear effortless meditation, I'm like, what's going on here? So so can you describe this for us? And how is this different than what we think of traditional meditation? Okay, so, you know, I've studied a lot of different meditative techniques over the years. And my favorite um, technique um, that I teach, <laughs> this is going to sound so counterintuitive to you, but again, everything I do is a little counterintuitive, <laughs> but it works. And really, again, it goes back down to to being in a space of effortlessness with yourself. So usually, and this is the thing, most people tell me, oh, I can't meditate, or I can't, mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't, I don't have the brain for it, I don't have the capacity for it, mm-hmm. or I don't need to do that. And I, I said, you know, I can put you in a quasi-meditative state, a Zen state in about two minutes. Do you want to try? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's part NLP, part hypnotherapy, but it's also part movement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with allowing your body to find that space where it feels like it can kind of weave or flow or just mm-hmm. grow with you. A lot of people see meditation as being something you sit in stasis and you don't do mm-hmm. anything, but actually that's not correct at all. There's a million different ways to meditate. and Every person has the most optimal form of meditation that works most beautifully for you. So the key is to find what works for you and to do that and to do it consistently on a daily basis. My form of movement meditation is dancing. That's how I meditate. Um, I know a lot of people that meditate on horseback. I've taught several writers to meditate on horseback. Um, I know a number of people who meditate while they paint. Other people meditate while they write. There's a wide variety of approaches to meditation. So the first and foremost aspect of effortless meditation is to just be guided by the thing that calls to your soul to allow you to open up and elevate your awareness into that higher state of flow. Because really, ultimately, that's all meditation is about. It's all about getting you into that higher level meditative awareness of the moment now. And however you do that is how it works best for you. Now, some of my guided meditations, um, they're more geared towards just kind of being in a relaxed state Mm -hmm. of being, where you're just kind of sitting back and relaxing. You get to hear... I put in a series of binaural beats. I have some other underlying um, tonals that I've created and some Schumann wave generator that I have here at home that I imported from Germany nice. that creates a soft flowing wave through all of the meditation soundtracks that I've put together. So usually, like I said, in a couple of minutes, you're already there and you can choose to listen to the whole thing or you can go about your day. <laughs> about as effortless That's as you great. can get. <laughs> you know, and I'm so happy you shared that, Isis, because I've also been saying for a long time that meditation does not have to be you sitting in the lotus position saying, Om. Yeah. you know, you, you can be doing <laughs> it, it. It doesn't have to be this stereotype of what people think of with meditation because you're exactly right it's about getting into that theta state and you can do that 
in so many different ways. In fact, you oftentimes are doing mm-hmm. it when you're driving. You don't even realize. Have you ever been driving? You don't and even then you, realize right? it. Right? You get somewhere and you're like, oh, my gosh, how did I get here? <laughs> right? How did I get here? Right? Because you, because you yeah, all the time. Right? <laughs> That's a form of meditation, believe it or not. I'm talking. I know. Well, yeah, that's that's another problem right there. Well, I was going to say normally because I'm talking to my guys, but I'm so busy talking. A lot of conversation going on there. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? Right, And there's a lot of stuff going on there, you know. And you know, one of the things in um, so there's this whole tantra of there's a very ancient tantra um, practice called the tantra of. Um, delight, awe, and bliss, and ecstasy. Mm. And there's 144 me- um, uh, meditation techniques just alone in that in that sutra. Wow. So, yeah, and and some of them have you doing things like staring at your armpit until you start giggling in- uncontrollably, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> so <laughs> this is great. <laughs> yeah. So we we think that the ancients they were so stoic and stuff, right? but actually they they quite a lot of fun with some of their experiments. That's 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 so great. I love it. Now speaking of delight, let's talk about what you call the forgotten universal law, which is the law of delight. What is this law, and how did you come to understand it? Well, you know, I've done a lot of research. Like I said, you know, five years of research, and um, I. Again, in 2012, 2012 was a really amazing year for me. I'll tell mm. you, a lot of things shift for me that year. That's good. <laughs> but I had a, I was working on, um, I was working on um, this um, podcast and radio show with um, another partner of mine, and we were doing a lot of divine downloads, and it was called Conversations with the Universe. And so we were just doing random conversations with the universe, whatever came into being we would download and start flowing with. And we had all kinds of really incredible mind-bending conversations mm-hmm. with the universe. <laughs> well, um, we, I was preparing for an episode, and all of a sudden I got struck by this, because I'd been researching for this book, mm-hmm. this idea that you guys have completely bypassed the first law. And I'm like, what do you mean we've completely bypassed the first law? He's like, well, technically it's the law of the masters, but you know, maybe you're not interested in it. I, I'll you know, stuff it up. My 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 guides are full of it like that. So I'm like, what do you mean? No, you can't do that to me. You carrot, can't carrot, take away. Carrot, carrot, take away. We're like, oh, 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 you do want this download? Okay, you know, but that's how we converse. It's, it's that's a lot great. of fun. And, uh, lots of, we we have great conversations. But, Fantastic. So, um, the next thing I know, I had this epiphany. It was like, oh my gosh, oh here it is, and then. Everywhere I'd go, I'd look at sutras, and I was looking at the Bhagavad Gita, and I was reading um, Bible, and then all of a sudden I was at the Quran, and then I was like, here, 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 mm-hmm. here. It was like, it was lit up in every one of these texts, this particular divine law. And over and over and over, I was being told that the law of attraction was only to get you guys to this point, mm. now you get ready for the law of delight. Mm. And this is going to make things so much easier for you now. And I said, okay, so give it to me. And it says it's a two-part law. And if you activate the two parts of this law, boom, everything has to operate in perfect harmony to manifest your most heart, your heart, most heartfelt desires. And it works so fast. It works so automatically. And it's because it is our divine promise. It's something that we were given as a part of our agreement to incarnate here in in an experiment on this physical plane. Mm. So we weren't given we weren't we weren't here without a bunch of tools 
to, to help us, you know, make the most out of our experiment here. <laughs> right, right, right. So this is one of them. So this is one of the most important ones. And it says, delight yourself fully in whatever, and you will receive your heart's desires. And you can fill in the blank with whatever. Uh-huh. It could be life. It could be God. It could be this. It could be that. It could be anything. As long as you focus on delighting yourself fully. And the reason why is because the light is ecstatic. The light is the highest resonating energy in the universe. And what happens is when you start getting yourself so filled up with the light, and the word delight itself is an encoded, it's encoded. It means divine light mm-hmm. and divine love. It's all woven together. It's a mm-hmm. catalyzing force. So when you have divine love and divine light, and you've got these two pieces, and divine love is your feminine energy, and divine light your masculine energy, and you put those two together, and boom, <laughs> you have your static state of bliss and joy and harmony and delight. Mm-hmm. And the word delight is that encoded matrix, and that gives you that, boom, power behind whatever it is you're manifesting on behalf of yourself. You don't have to worry about your vibrational state. You don't have to worry about what you're doing. You don't have to worry anymore. You just go and delight yourself fully and focus on what 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 is your heart's most deepest desire and it manifests automatically. Fantastic. And so you mentioned the law of attraction. And it's interesting because in 2007, there was an enormous surge in interest in the law of attraction. Uh, it it's mm-hmm. since seemed to level off some, but, you know, there's still quite a bit of buzz around this concept. You talk about how mm-hmm. people get so caught up in the law of attraction, they forget the other 108 universal laws that are operating in their lives. Now, I'm guessing, and myself included, there are not a lot of people out there, or there are a lot of people out there, who didn't have a clue that there are even another 100-plus laws operating in their lives. So There is, and they're always in operation. And sometimes they're operating... Um, in a positional force. So sometimes that creates a whole other paradigm and dynamic. <laughs> mm. so, so if you, if things are at all, if you, if you don't have your core, um, your core self, your heart, your soul, as it were, your higher space, your consciousness kind of fully involved in mind things up for you, there's all sorts of things that can kind of fall into your path. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we create those patterns from our, our soul story and our, um, you know, and all of our history and stuff that we have carrying forward with us into this life. But sometimes it's just a convolution of you not being clear and all of a sudden, boom, 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 all these things are happening and you have no idea why all these things are happening and you're thinking, oh, it's the law of attraction. Well, actually, you've got the law of magnetism. You've got the, the law of divine return. You've got the law of three. You've got, like, all these other laws. And so here's where we simplify things down because if you activate the first universal law, which is the law of delight, and the reason why it's the first universal law, the very first one, it's because from the ancient tantric um, Hindu texts and the ancient tantric um, belief is that the universe created itself out of a desire to experience delight and ecstasy. Mm -hmm. That was the only reason. And, and to experience and experiment creation and experiment with this and to see how it could delight itself fully. And so, boom, it breathed and it was delighted with its breath. And boom, it, it started to experiment with other forms of creation. And before you know it, it's evolving and expanding in this divine golden spiral. So the, the law of delight is the catalyst for that golden spiral. And we see that spiral, that divine spiral everywhere, the golden ratio. Everywhere. Yes, yes, V, and, and yes, absolutely. So, you know, it's inter- I'm glad you said that. That cleared a lot of a lot of 
miscommunications and misunderstandings that cleared a lot up for me because one of my complaints about The Secret, you remember The Secret, the book and, and the movie. Oh, um, yes, I am, yes. Yeah, yes. one of my complaints about that when it first came out, I immediately said, they're leaving something out. That's not the whole story. Something doesn't add up. You know, and, and then mm-hmm. people would try to use it and, and it wouldn't work at all for some people and then some people it would work, but then it would fizzle out. And so... How, Explain a little bit about why the law of attraction can can trip people up and, and get them off track. You know, a lot of times it's because we get so focused on intention setting. And if you recall the old adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. Makes me not, not want to do anything good. No, I'm, ki- I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> the whole problem. So, so there's a lot of various different. Um, it, it's interesting because when you start expanding, your, you know, your knowledge in other cultures, you'll see these sorts of old adages mm-hmm. kind of repeat themselves in various different texts in various <laughs> different ways. So there's mm-hmm. another one in the Quran. There's another one in in. Um, not the Bhagavad Gita. Where I read that, that I read that at. I have to remember that sutra. There's another one that says pretty much the same thing that intention without action fosters. Um, toxicity and a foster mm. stagnation. And, and the whole purpose is to remember that if you're in a stagnant place, you can't grow, you can't expand, and you're not attracting anything. You're just creating more stagnation. And here's the difference between life negation and life affirmation. Stagnation is life negating. If you've ever seen a stagnant pond and you see all that muck and stuff and all of that ick, right? Yes. And it's stagnant. It's gross. It's debilitating. It's It's it, it basically just wants to glom onto you. And if you've ever met somebody who feels like an energy vampire where they're just really desperate and needy and creamy mm-hmm. and they just want to suck you dry, right? Mm-hmm. That's yes. the stagnation energy. It's because they're stuck in stagnation. They're stuck in a pain body that they haven't released yet. And so they're looking because they can't create and draw, attract the energy that they need for themselves. They're looking for other people to do it for them. So it's the kind of the same process as the law of attraction creates a lot of there, there are some good, some good teachings around it. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I absolutely think that it's it's great and valid that we have this set sitting here. Like it's mm-hmm. this first level step. It's like kindergarten. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, guys, here's the sandbox, and here's how you play <laughs> in the sandbox, and here are the rules to the sandbox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and you're right. It, it was but good. It served do- its purpose by getting this sort of mainstream. And and out there, although I have to say it's interesting, even today when I'm teaching workshops still, there are some people I'll say, do you understand, you know, have you heard of the law of attraction? Do you know what the law of attraction is all about? And there are still some people in there that, that haven't, that, that don't. So there's still work that to they do. they haven't, right. There's still work. Yeah, there's still work to do. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about there's your still work. But... Let's talk about your book, Delight. What inspired you? That's, I think, your first book. What inspired you to write that? Um, well, in, my epiphany really inspired me, and then the um, the amount of in, the amount of interesting um, texts that I'd read that all kind of re- sort of hinted around this idea of ecstasy and delight as being this um, a really rapid way to reach a higher level of being an enlightened path. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Plato called it the stairway to heaven. I mean, when Plato says something's the stairway to heaven, you kind of sit up and take notes, mm-hmm. right? Yes. <laughs> and, when Aris- <laughs> and when Aristotle calls it the, the, the pinnacle movement, the pinnacle ex- the human experience, when it, it, it 
finds itself in the eyes of another. When you, when somebody says that, you, you start taking note and you start going, okay, there's something here mm-hmm. that needs to be investigated that I don't think anybody's really ever investigated before. And so me being who I am, mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to go do that. I'm going <laughs> to go look at that. I want to see where this takes me. So it mm-hmm. became this interesting little evolving journey um, where it kind of... It, our life is like a spiral, right? Yes. So I went through this healing journey, but then I went back through this journey, but at a different level where I was looking at the points in my life as points where I really had that moment of transformation or that epiphany or that aha moment or that. Mm-hmm. And, and when we see that, it was just like, oh my goodness, oh, it all fits, you know? So when I started writing the book, um, I actually started it writing it as a series of vignettes and kind of just this happened and then I read this passage and then this, you know, this makes sense to me here. And then I get a divine download about something else. And then I write that. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, you're right. This is so cool. And it all fits perfectly together. Before I knew it, I had a book. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now I'm glad that you brought up the downloads uh, because I want to talk about that. I, I teach classes and workshops that talk about connecting with the other side, whether it's mediumship, whether, you know, spirit communication, spirit guides, channeling messages. And, mm. and in my classes and workshops, I, I explain that I receive downloads of information directly from source when channeling messages, which is a little bit different than doing a psychic reading or, you know, it's, it's a different process. How does the process of receiving divine downloads work for you? Well, you know, it's, it's a very interesting process for me usually I'm in a, a space of of flow do you know the the higher it's like stepping out of my body for a bit connecting um, with a conduit of energy and then just saying asking a question and then receiving an answer I mean it, it's as simple as that it's um it, it's become so automatic for me um it happens I don't know and it, it happens automatically I it, it's, I've been doing this pretty much my whole life it's kind of difficult to explain how it yeah, yeah it's you know and it's, it's like i'll be sitting here and suddenly oh yes that or oh yes that and then all of a sudden boom a whole flood of stuff and i'm like oh my gosh that's so cool well you would probably for those people who are trying to learn how to do this or they're trying to understand how a divine download works you would probably agree that uh one of the first steps is really getting that meditative state that meditative practice in congruence, oh, absolutely. right? Because that's yeah, that's... absolutely. When I when I guide people to receive divine guidance or higher guidance or source guidance, it really does. It is getting into that higher level of awareness. Mm-hmm. It is kind of stepping into that space, that flow. And so when we get into that, and usually when I do the sorts of where I want to get people together to kind of do this, I do them. I don't know. Do you do them in small groups or do you do one on one? Because I usually do small groups. I do all of that. I do small groups. I do. Uh, I do. So I, I'm working the psychic circuits. I do a lot of workshops at the circuits. I used to teach actual classes when I was up in Northern California. I don't do that here yet. I do online and then I do one on one. So a, a variety. So you okay? So you do a variety of things. Yeah. So in my experience, I found that doing it in small groups kind of helps alleviate some of the pressure and some of the um, the um, the disbelief. It's like they can, all together as a group, I find that they can kind of set their skeptic aside for a little bit and kind of come together and just do a divine download together. And that's, 
that's kind of what I do is I kind of give them that guidance of getting into that meditative step, stepping out of your body and allowing that connective force to kind of connect with you. Mm-hmm. And depending on each individual, each individual has a different um, opening, you know, along mm-hmm. the chakra points. So, yeah. um, you know, some have, you know, the crown chakra wide open and you can see it. You can see it in the mm-hmm. art field, right? You can see Absolutely. who's open and where they're open and where mm-hmm. they're like totally shut down at. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Oh, well, let's work with that particular ability. Let's work with that one. So for each individual. <laughs> and so what we do in these small groups is we'll have them each download a piece of information and then they'll get to all together and start talking or writing it out. And it's fascinating what people together in a small group will, will manifest out of thin air. It's pretty right? amazing. It's like, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> I like, know. Did I say that? Did that come out of my mouth? It's you fantastic. Know, I don't even know what those words mean. <laughs> <laughs> And it's fun because they're in a small group, you know, it's, they get to connect with one another and share that. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, the opening in the chakra. I have to share this with you because this is, the, it just it reminded me when you, when you said, uh, when you were talking about the, the opening in the aura, you can see it. And I was explaining to people again, that when I'm channeling, some people will see through their third eye, their, you know, the chakra right square mm-hmm. in the front and mm-hmm. uh, others impasse definitely work a lot in the solar plexus area uh, but I get a lot right. of downloads directly from source and I and I explain you know I get it through my cr- uh, crown chakra and so w- one day I decided scientist that I am I'm going to do an experiment because I'm curious so you know when you're working the psychic circuit they typically have someone there who's doing the Carillion photograph where they photograph your aura and so I had my aura photographed and I said, okay, now save me a spot and I want to come over right after I do a reading and I want to do it again. I want to compare before and after I do a reading because I'm, I'm curious to see what will happen. It was, it, was, it was amazing. And I have the photographs I'm, that's going to go in one of the books I'm writing. But you can see that before I do the reading, I have this bright yellow aura that's really large and fluffy all around me. And it's got some tinges of color on the outside, but predominantly yellow. And then immediately after I do the reading, you can see that the aura has been pulled in closer to me. It's turned sort of an orangish gold. And you can see a distinct funnel right at my crown chakra where it's opened up. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, there it is. I mean, you can see it. <laughs> You could sense it, but now you can see it. Yes. I'm not crazy. See? <laughs> no, you're not crazy. <laughs> see what I've been telling you? No. There's the evidence. There's still going to be people that say I'm absolutely crazy. I'm okay with that now. I'm I'm so, so okay with that now. One of, one of the bits, you know, there are people that are just, it doesn't matter what you do. They're just, you know what? Oh, my favorite was um, I had a I had a call by by a woman who really wanted to interview me, but she was totally put off by the fact that I'm a clairvoyant and channel, uh, and I do divine downloads. And she's like, "You you don't understand. I don't ever interview people like this. These people are charlatans and stuff." <laughs> so, and in, in after talking with me for five minutes, she said, "Oh my gosh, I have to have you on the show. Mm-hmm. You're amazing." You're the yes, real deal. Yes. And I'm like, I said, I don't know what I just said to her. I have no idea what I said to her, but apparently I said something. I have no idea what it was. I have no recall. And that's one of the things when I do, when I, when I start communicating at that higher level, I have no recall of that's what, right. what transpired. So that's, that's why I write or, or try to record it yes. because it, once it comes through, it's gone. It's out. That's it. So true. It's that. That is absolutely and true. So I told her, I said, well, whatever I said, I hope it was good. <laughs> well, it has to be. It's, it's when like it's laughing. channeled, you know, it's higher. Like, 
she's like, oh my God, I love you more now than, than oh, and so she, and then she called me back and she's like, I need to have you on both my radio stations. Nice. And I'm like, seriously? She's like, you're the first one I've ever interviewed wow. and I need to have you on both. So nice. the world is changing. The world is shifting. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. People, People well, it's, are accepting that there's higher function. <laughs> and here's the thing. I want, to, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about talking to small groups and talking about skeptics, talking about people who think this is all charlatan, this is all nonsense, there's people trying to take advantage. Yes, there are those out there, unfortunately. We're trying to weed those out. Yeah, However, it is unfortunate. They are out there. One of the most important aspects of mediumship or other channeled information is to be able to provide validation. We need to provide validation. So how do you, I I mean, I know how I do it, but how do you know where to look to validate channeled information you receive? Because that's important. It is very important. I don't write anything without having validated it first. Uh, Like put it together in a book or put it together on, on, out there until I've actually tested it or I validate it through Mm. um, more ancient books. I have... I have a library of, I don't know, probably close to 6,000 books. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. I, <laughs> I, thought I, was, I thought I was I addicted have... to books. <laughs> Jeez. No, no. I, I'm a voracious reader. I read. <laughs> at, I read voraciously. So if, and here's the thing. One of the other things is you have to be really conscious and really aware of the level of energy that you're, you are channeling. Like, there are some stuff out there that you just do not want to have connection with. And yes. I'm, thankfully gratefully deeply honored and grateful that where I'm connected to has been nothing but a resourceful and very, very, um, I would say loving guidance and focused on optimal best quality of life for everyone involved. So I don't get like twisted, weird stuff. Yes. <laughs> like I read some channel stuff. that's just like, what? what? Uh, exactly. <laughs> Okay, now I'm even saying that's so, crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I have a very open mind. Right. So when yeah. I receive some channeled information about my my family history, I I was really skeptical about it. I was like, there's no way, no way, no, no, no. And I had put it down and I put it away, and I'm like. And I left it there for a while. And what happened was over the course of a couple months, I started seeing things about um, discoveries, like on the Scottish, that, that there was a, there was a, a crashed vessel on, the Scot- on a Scottish island or on a Scottish shore that they came to find out it was Egyptian and they had no idea how it got there. Wow. And then later on in Terra, they had a discovery of Egyptian, um, uh, um, Egyptian artifacts that were obviously either traded or, or were brought there by somebody. Um, then they had, um, and, and the, the dating card, the carbon dating of it was a correct timeline for, for something that I had channeled. It was really weird, really scary. Like, like deep, deep gut level, like, Ew, really? Oh my God. It was right. Oh. <laughs> and then when, um, I had done a channeling on, um, I was curious about the history of humanity because in the in the tantric texts, the Vedic texts, they talk about that this is the fifth age of humankind and that there have been four previous ages. And so I was curious about what those other ages were and whether or not there was any validation out there about it. So I channeled some information. I said, okay, that's curious and that's interesting. I'm going to put that aside for a while and, you know, check back in on it when I can. Mm -hmm. Well, come to find out, (laughs) 
one of my friends had sent me an article on how they had discovered nuclear-fused glass in certain parts of India. And it was weird because, again, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, there's the um, there's another one called the, and I'm really bad with pronunciation, sorry, the Rama, the Ramadan, um, where it talks about the, the last war that destroyed human civilization and people run flying around in airships shooting at each other and destroying mm-hmm. everything and mm-hmm. um and there's it's like this very deep very very heroic and very very um aggressive text and how that this is how the last this is how the last age was destroyed and then we finding nuclear fused glass in the middle of um and I can't really remember the dates off the top of my head I'll send them to you later but it, it was just like utterly like jaw dropping. And then, so right. I went back through the Vedic text and validated that the timeline. And then I'm calling a couple of my friends who are from India. I have a number of Indian friends and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's actually correct. Yeah. Your timeline's pretty accurate on that. And I'm wow. like, seriously. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Um, we're still trying to figure out where that's coming from. And we're trying really hard not to let the general public know about X, Y, Z, you know, wow. things like that. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you get those and you're like, oh, that's interesting. So yeah, it's about validation. You absolutely validate the information you receive. You don't just blatantly throw it out there and hope it sticks. I, yeah. I don't do that. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that's a good thing. It's not. It's <laughs> like, not. It's, like I said, if I'm going to bring out this whole other universal law, that better be validated. You know? No kidding. Absolutely. <laughs> Please show me the text where it's at. And, you know, so my whole book, Delight, you'll see, you'll see um, inscriptions and you'll see whole passages where it's been talked about in in, in, in very clear terms so people can understand it. Great, great, great. Now your other book, and I just love this title because I love the play on words instead of Mission Impossible, Your Mission, I'm Possible. Like your book, Delight, it has a very powerful, uplifting message for men and women. So what inspired you to write this book now following up with Delight? Like, tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's kind of interesting because I started... Um, I wrote that book actually for my daughters. <laughs> um, and it's because um, so many people get caught up in this idea that certain dreams are impossible or certain goals are impossible to achieve. And, you know, one of my, um, one of my daughters is an aspiring actress and my other daughter is an aspiring novelist. And my friends, and there's a few other people out there who have criticized me for um, filling my children with pipe dreams and how can you allow them to do that and, and not have a, um, a valid career path like that or a backup plan lined up. Mm. And I started thinking, I'm like, you know, one, I don't really need to justify or, 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 um, you know, justify my parenting skills mm. or anything like that. I don't need to do that. It's not about that. It was really, I was like, okay, something really needs to shift in this world. Right. <laughs> Right. And so again, I was like, so how do we shift this? Because it's all about the lack and the scarcity mentality and the scarcity clause that's so prevalent in so many people's full contracts that they're enacting out here on earth in this game they're playing again. You know, it's still the scarcity game. We're still yes. playing the scarcity game. So, so come on, guys, let's get out of that and start getting into empowerment and abundance and prosperity and, and collective joy for each other. Yes. And um, so I... I asked for guidance on how I could give, you know, what, what, what should I, how, how would I teach my kids how to solve this issue core to them once and for all? So they have such a core foundation that's so unshakable 
that it doesn't matter who comes at them or challenges them. They have, they know in their heart of hearts, they know right there in the very core of their being that they have a mission here to achieve on earth. And that's how your mission, I'm possible came to be. I love and the that. title of the book actually came from Aud- Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> nice. She's my daughter's favorite actress. And what she was once quoted as saying, um, she said, um, there's no such thing as impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. And That's I wonderful. love that. Yes. And so I use that as the title because, and I like the whole idea of mission because we're, we're all here on a soul mission. Each mm-hmm. one of us has been given a mission to serve here. We're all part of a collective purpose to expand mm-hmm. our human potential, expand our consciousness, elevate ourselves and each other. And have new experiments as a result of that and go where no being has gone before. Absolutely. Okay, gonna throw some Star so Trek we're all in there now part too. of this collective. Right. You, you got it. Get a nerd out for so a minute. We're all part of this collective thing, but we all each have an individual mission to serve here on Earth. And if yeah. we don't fulfill our mission, we feel we feel depleted. We feel heartbroken. We feel like there's nothing worth living. And I know that I felt like that for a long time. I never want my children to feel like that. In fact, I don't want anyone to ever feel like that. So that was the whole impetus behind writing the book was I started out by saying, you know, when I was trapped um, in this situation that just seemed so dire, I could have given in to this belief that I will never get out and give up. Yes. But instead, I decided I had a mission and my one mission in life my one mission in life was to get home back to my kids no matter what it took. I was getting home to my kids. That mm-hmm. will be my mission. And then once I had that mission and I accomplished that mission, well, I didn't have anything else. And so I struggled for a long time trying to find the mission. Where's the mission? Yes. Where's my next mission? You know? So let's and talk so I about think a that lot of people struggle with that. Yes. Yes, sure. they do. Sure. Because <laughs> one of the main questions I get asked as a reader besides when am I going to get rich and find Mr. and Mrs. Wright, which that always comes up. Uh, they, pay, they oh, <laughs> Every time. What is... <laughs> every time. What is my life purpose? And so let's talk about that for a minute. What, what is my life purpose? So what's the difference between a purpose, a mission, and a vision? Oh, okay. That's great. Okay. So... Um, how can we say this? The purpose is um, kind of like, um, how would we say that? It's like a calling. It's almost like we have this um, overarching theme we want to see enacted out, mm-hmm. okay? And part of that is is like our soul, hey, I have this thing I want to see achieved in, in this lifetime, Okay. A mission is a very specific set of instructions that is based on your gifts, your talents, your abilities, and something so core to you that lights your fire, that's your passion, that propels you forward, that draws you forward. So it's this, it's just like core thing. It's like it, it helps you fulfill that purpose by, by driving you forward. That's the mission. That the, the, the purpose is the feminine energy. It's more of this. Um, softer layer, like, um, how would we say this? The best firm uh, way of translating this. Collective purpose we talked about. Mm-hmm. So individual purpose is more like, um, oh, let me put it to you this way. I would like to see trafficking ended 
in the world today. That's mm-hmm. a purpose. Mm-hmm. But it's not a mission because it's an impossible mission to serve for one person. Mm-hmm. But my mission here is I can make a difference by doing this. I can set up schools. I can get people on the ground and we can put these kids, get these kids out of these situations and into a place that's safe first. First of all, is safety. Second of all, is healing. So that's my mission. My other mission, and we have multiple missions, and they're always evolving to fit that overarching purpose Mm -hmm. um, of whatever it is we're serving. So as we create that shift and we create that momentum in our mission, it it evolves and changes. My other mission is to teach people how to have that divine life that resonates with their core mission, their vision, their purpose for their life. So that's Mm -hmm. that. The vision is the masculine, the energy behind it. It gives you that... um, that that image that you want to see achieved in your life. So that's the that's the almost like the movie that you're playing as to why you're achieving that or what you're looking for to achieve the vision that you have. So does that that does makes that make sense? sense? That make, yeah, it, <laughs> I'm kind I of like running that. out of scene. No, here. Like, <laughs> I totally yeah, I totally like that. More um, I think we've been going. How long have we been going? Oh, oh my, my gosh, almost two hours. Right? I know. It's <laughs> there's just so much stuff here. There's so much stuff here. It's like, I, want, I need to have you on the show. I definitely have to have you on the show again because even at that, we're just, we're. Oh, we'd love that. Hitting we'd surface love that. stuff here. Yes. <laughs> we but, would love that. You know, that's what. That we all would. Exactly. I'm getting a very strong yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> that's one of the things I love about doing, first of all, my own radio show, but also doing it. Uh, the way I'm doing it, I, I don't have to say, okay, uh, well, 30 minutes, that's it. Cut you off mid-sentence. We're done. It's, you know, it's beautiful. People can download this later. They can fast forward. They can rewind. They can do whatever they want. So They can do whatever they want. They can do whatever they yeah. want. And it's here for posterity, which is phenomenal. Absolutely. No question. <laughs> so let's talk about, you're, you're known as Americans' leading expert on soul purpose. So how do you help people discover and claim their soul purpose? Well, um, we do a lot of things. We do intensives, we do workshops. Um, I teach a course called Your Mission, I'm Possible. I'm getting ready to launch that here in the next month or two. Um, and we do, um, I do readings like you um, and in private sessions where we connect with um, a person's Akashic records. We connect with their astrological, their numerolo- numerological charts. Um, and I can see all this stuff. So as long as I get their information ahead of time, I can prepare for it. But then I can, once I connect with the person, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But this is wrong and this is right. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And here's how to line it up for you. Um, but mostly it's calling the person's soul forward to actually communicate with them on their behalf. And and it's amazing how how many people are really disconnected from themselves at the soul level. It, it really is. They're completely disconnected. So once we get that connection healed and that connection re you know rebonded firmly for them they can actually start self-expressing themselves from the heart you wouldn't believe what comes out of people's mouths it's amazing mm. you know getting them clear and it's just like well this is what i want to do and, I'm blah, 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 and you can't keep up and you're like oh my gosh look you have a wellspring look at you Fantastic. look at you so what's stopping you? And then they pull right back and they disconnect immediately. And you're like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. No, 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 no. Come back, come back, come back. (laughs) Let's let's get into that scary space because that's where you need to grow. That's where you need to evolve. That's where you need to expand. That's where you need to flourish. So getting people calling people out basically it's really what i do oh those are a couple yeah. things you're okay you're talking my language right now so let's talk about two things right now around that so 
one of my callings in this lifetime is is to help people regain their sense of self-empowerment and self-responsibility. No more of this handing over everything to somebody else. And and self-victimization. And self-victim, exactly, self-victimization. And so, yeah. and, I, and I know your work my... also has this overarching theme about liberation and cultivating inner freedom and fully self-expressing soul's mission. So how do you Absolutely, see this transforming yes. the world for the better? So we're going to take this global now. <laughs> well, I see, here's the thing. And I see when people start self-expressing, when they start stepping into their power, when they start stepping into their divine essence and they go towards their calling, the world changes and shifts monumentally and rapidly. And look at the way tech has transformed our lives so mm-hmm. rapidly, just by a few tech people kind of stepping into their calling and being yes. fearless around that. And the reason why I think tech has evolved so rapidly and the shift has been so so amazing is because in that particular industry, unlike other industries, there's, there's this like no limits thinking. Well, what can I do? Well, what if that happens? Well, what if that? Well, let's try this. So let's try that. And right. I worked in the tech industry because it called to me early on because it had that no limits, nothing's impossible. We'll figure it out as we go along, sort of like pioneering, and, you know, in, I call them infinite explorers, you know, nice. <laughs> transdimensional uh-huh. explorers. We can, yeah. we can solve these problems. We can do this. You know? <laughs> nice. um, so that's kind of where I see things going. I think if we can take more of that, um, that mentality, that pioneering mentality, that, that intrepid explorer mentality and the nothing's impossible mentality and infuse more people with that. I think we would see so many more solutions to our community issues, our water issues, Mm -hmm. our, you know, our lifestyle issues, so many issues around our environment. When we infuse people with that belief that they can initiate a change because there is nothing that can't be shifted, nothing that can't be changed, and nothing that can't be healed on this planet right here now. Mm-hmm. As long as enough of us come together mm-hmm. with that same kind of mentality that we are here to serve and we are here to shift and yes. we are here to create this monumental shift, you won't believe how fast things will flip and when I, we get enough people I going on that ready. momentum and in that flow. Yes. I think we're almost there. Yeah. I really sense we're almost there. We're at, we're at a cresting point at this point. So it's now it's just kind of creating that tipping, getting that tipping point over. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and once, once we see it, it's just going to tumble and it's just going to, but a lot of people are so afraid. So people, there's, there's two energies at play here and we're seeing actually playing it out right now in our political arena. Oh yes. There's fear. Absolutely. And there's love. Yes. And there's a lot of fear right now because a lot of people are so worried that they're going to lose their, their small fortune right. over, you know, and where they're forgetting the bigger picture, which is we have an entire planet. Yes. We have an infinite, a level of abundance. We don't need to be in fear anymore. And let's talk about that, that for a moment because, yes, I mean, we're, we're in the, the year of, it's 2016, we're in the year of a presidential election. This is an unprecedented event that's occurring right now with, you know, some of the candidates, and I'm not going to go down the road too much in politics, but let's talk about, because this this is appropriate to what we're experiencing right now. One of my other missions is to get people to live more authentically, to get real and be real. You also point out that we should drop our masks and be more vulnerable at the soul level in our business and our relationships. That's a powerful way to to transform lives. And if we can get people, our leaders, to do the same, can you imagine the shift? Why do you think so many people run from the truth or they're afraid for that facade to crumble? 
Well, you know, I'll take it back to um, I'll take it back to us as a microcosm, and then we can see it from the macrocosm as well. I think a lot of people um, we have this fear because we've got this mask that we wear. We've got this thing that we have over ourselves that we call identity and it's, and it's individuated and it's, it's small and it's tiny and it's something we can, we have control over and our little minds have put that into place in order because it's so afraid that it's going to be hurt or that it's going to be exposed in some way that it's not good enough or not valuable enough or not worthy enough just as they are. So it has to create that, that shield over itself. So it has to wear that armor. And what happens when you wear armor and what happens when you shield yourself? What happens when you're laying yourself with all of that? You become rigid and inflexible and you become like this, this charged up person who's ready to lash out and strike, right? You're just, yes. you're, you know, rigid and formed. The and warrior These personality. are your beliefs and these are your paradigms. The warrior personality, which that entity and that personality has its place, has its mm-hmm. time, has its need. We have a need for warriors. I'm not mm-hmm. saying we don't. There's mm-hmm. tons of archetypes out there that we can address with that. But we're also seeing that more and more in our um, in our, poli- our politicians, where they're they're flexing one facade, but they actually have another facade, mm-hmm. and then they have a third facade. You know, just it all depends. It's like seeing um, the paradigms at play, the, 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 it's like seeing a person with multiple personality to sort of right. come out. <laughs> it's true. So, so we see all this and we're just like, wow. But the thing is, is the more and more authentic people become in, within themselves and within their communities, the less tolerance they're going to have for yes. people who are inauthentic, who resort to manipulation in games because mm-hmm. we're, we're stepping into a higher playing field. We're stepping into a higher game. Absolutely. <laughs> there's always going to be games. There's always yeah. going to be playing fields and there's always going to be rules, but we're stepping mm-hmm. into a higher playing field. We're stepping into a higher get level game that requires us to drop all this baggage so we can lift ourselves up into that next level. That's right. So we have to drop all of it if we're going to ascend, if we're going to get up there and yeah. start playing at this bigger, in this bigger field. Because and let's talk about that. Go ahead. I was going to say, until we get our stuff right here on I'm sorry, I dropped you again. I didn't mean to. But until we get our stuff right here on Earth, there's no way that anybody else is going to want to come and play with us. That's right. And so so to that end, many people say, you can't have a soul-driven business. You can't can't do this in the real world. It's too competitive and, and sometimes it's vicious. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I got I get that a lot. I'm like, well, I look at what I've done. Yep. Do I seem vicious to you? Do I seem competitive to you? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can compete and play at games. That's fine, but mm. I get more results by just being me. <laughs> oh, and we love you. I love you. How can how can I love you too? <laughs> you are love. Like you can. Well, yes. Well, so are you. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's just about stepping in and saying, "Hey, let's suit up and show up and play some fun and have some fun." We don't have to get into this war-based competition mentality. Everyone yes. can win, and everyone has has a place to be, and everyone can have fun. One of the things I really loved about um, to go back to this, Microsoft released a commercial um, in December of this year, which I thought really spoke to the shift that we're starting to experience on a grander scale. And it was kind of interesting because what they had their employees do is they got a whole bunch of their Windows employees um, to go over and carol um, to, at the Mac store. 
and give um, all the Mac employees hugs and well wishes and things like that. And I thought that was so awesome yeah. because it was like there is enough room for everyone. Right. And and it was totally it was totally this and it wasn't a script. They were actually really sincere about it. You know, it was it. like, yes, that's the direction we're heading towards. That's where everyone has space to play. That's, you know, it's exactly. no more about the competition. I love that. I yeah. love that. So I do too. <laughs> let's let's talk about something else. I'm really excited to hear more about your nonprofit you co-founded. Let's talk about a child unchained. Now you talked a little bit about how the idea came about, how how the implementation occurred. What's your focus of your nonprofit? The focus of the nonprofit is primarily to raise funds. We do um, an annual charity benefit, and we do some small benefits here and there throughout the year, but our main benefit is once a year, um, and it's coming up in um, March of this year. And what we really focus on, on mostly is education here in America, that what, what's really going on out there in the world, but also what's really going on here as well. And then using those funds, to build schools to get these kids out. We have, uh, we are partnered with another volunteer organization that's actually on the ground in Vietnam and Cambodia that specializes in getting these kids out of these situations from first finding them, second negotiating for, for the release, and then third getting them to safety. Oh, and wow. it's a very difficult situation. It, it, it's, it's very complex. It's, there's a lot of layers that, that are at play here. So it's, um, it, it, there has been some political stuff that has come up from time to time. There's been some interesting stuff that's happened. Like one of our schools, um, didn't get approved at first because we didn't pay off the right politicians, things like that. You know, <laughs> you're like, no matter where you go, the game is being played. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's <laughs> but something you have to do what you have to. Yeah. Th- that's something so, that needs to you know, and then having. Sure. Definitely. And then, you know, I wanted to build a wall around one of our schools because I was, uh, there was some stuff where we had lost um, two or three children. And so I said, we have to build walls and they have to be this tall. And I don't care what it takes. We need to get them in because Mm -hmm. we need to keep these kids safe because Mm -hmm. that is the commitment I'm making to these kids is that they will stay safe and that they will have a life and that they will be allowed to be kids and they will go to school. The other thing that we do is we provide healing, we provide therapy, we provide medical care, dental care, clothes, all the educational materials a child needs, and we have agreements with vocational schools and universities for these kids so once they graduate, they can transition into a vocational program or a university. You're amazing. The hardest part, <laughs> well, it's not just me, there's a whole lot of people, all all I do is help raise funds that's, that's, <laughs> and occasionally go over great. there and, and try to negotiate. <laughs> wow. I just, I just, I'm amazed. All you can do. Yeah. Well, that's, we're, we just do a little at a time where we can, what we can do. And the other thing that we, we try to do is make sure and maintain that it's a hundred percent volunteer run. Nobody in my nonprofit organization is paid for anything. None of us get a dime for it. Every, every dime that we possibly can goes directly to those kids and it's it's amazing one of the hardest things we have right now for us is getting citizenship status for these kids because neither country wants to admit that these kids are theirs because to admit these kids are theirs is admitting to the problem oh my that is the hardest thing we have facing is to get these kids citizenship papers so that they can be you know have a real life have life back for them so that they can be very productive citizens in the world you know 
we don't know if this is one of these kids that can, you know, ha- has the most amazing technical idea or yeah. maybe they have, you know, they, they solve a major chronic illness or something. We don't know. So right. we can't risk losing them. Fantastic. Really important. In, your, in addition to your seemingly endless projects and accomplishments, the list is <laughs> ex- exhausting. I just, I'm just amazed. But in addition to all of these things, you're also a devoted mother, and you have a number of fur babies. You have animals. Where do oh, you, I love my babies. Where do you find the energy? How do you balance all this? How, how are, are you sure you're not cloned? How, how are you doing this? <laughs> I, 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 I have a lot of help. I have a lot of help. I have, I don't do the nonprofit by myself. I, I mean, there's a lot of help that goes into that. There's a lot of work that goes into that. And I'm so eternally grateful to all of our volunteers that do that because they make that work. They make it, they, they're the ones that are doing it. You know, I, I'm such a small part. I'm just, I'm helping, but it's just such, I mean, we, when we talk about things like this, it's a whole group effort, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a whole team effort. It means we have to have a community together around these things. Um, for my family, you know, they're wonderful. We take care of each other. They're my babies. <laughs> my babies so much. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'm a prolific writer. I just, I write a lot. I spend a lot of time just writing um, and thinking and connecting where I can with people um, on very deep levels. So I do everything I can to just create a shift in this world because it's important to me. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, the work you are doing is Very absolutely important. important to many, many people. Just a couple more things I, I want to so. talk about before we wrap it up for this evening. You're also a tantric dakini. So what is that? Uh, Explain that for our listeners. Okay. So here's the thing. With a tantric bikini, the West has a very interesting view on what a tantric bikini is. Um, oh, first of all, back up a, a little bit people... for people who may not even know what Tantra is. There are some people no, listening. Okay. Yeah, they... Who have no idea what Tantra yeah. is. Mm-hmm. So, so Tantra, there's many variety of different paths of Tantra, mostly here in the West. Most people associate Tantra with sexual practice and um, the Kumasa, what is it? The Kama Sutra, Kama Sutra, the Kama uh-huh. Sutra, and and so a lot of people have that belief that tantra is all about sex, and it's actually so such a small part of the whole tantric um, aspect of experiencing life on a much higher level and a much higher frequency. Tantra is actually about self-realization. It's about self-accountability, self-responsibility, all those things you talked about. It's also about walking your own path and learning to forge that path. And the whole idea behind Tantra, the word Tantra itself means to weave. And it means to weave yourself in connection with the whole universe to weave. And then it also means to stretch, to expand, to grow, which is something that the whole universe is doing, stretching, expanding, and growing. Mm -hmm. So as you're weaving, you're stretching and expanding your tapestry to encounter all aspects of a life experience. That's what Tantra is all about. Sex is just one small part of it. (laughs) There's a whole lot of Mm -hmm. stuff that goes along with Mm -hmm. it. So that's what Tantra is. Um, there's several different paths in Tantra. There's Buddhist Tantra, um, there's Hindu Tantra, and even within those two, there's Tibetan Buddhist Tantra, and then there's you know in a, a variety of different approaches to that. And then in Hindu Tantra, there's oh my gosh, I want to say probably a good 
hundreds, hundreds of ideas around what that looks like. So um, a tantric bikini is a very specific woman. And most religious cultures um, in modern civilization do not have places for women of, to have elevated um, hierarchy within the religious practice. A lot of them are very, very patriarchal. But in Tantra, a bikini is actually considered the transmuter, kind of the highest form of um, respect you can get or you can receive from a teacher or from a... Um, it's, it would, I would liken it to being like a high priestess. Mm-hmm. Which you also are, by the really way. Good. You're an ordained high priestess <laughs> yes, in Shimon. I'm an ordained high priestess after after I received my yes, yes, I I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> because why I, not? I do a lot of ceremonies, and why not? And well, yeah. the thing was, is I was asked to do some ceremonies, and I wasn't ordained to do ceremony. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let me become legally ordained to do these ceremonies, and then I can do them for you guys. Fantastic. And I work with a lot of people who are very alternative in their spiritual path and their mm-hmm. spiritual state seeking. And I used to be, I used to help people transition. Um, from life to death, and then also um, from single to married, and do those ceremonies for people. So nice, one of the things. Nice. Now, um, a guru so, and has. I don't, there's. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, go ahead. I was just a guru has blessed you as the only living red dakini and gave you a sacred name. So, what is what does yes. that mean? And what that means is um, when you become a. Um, when you become a dakini, you're given a name. Um, and usually when you're, when you are blessed to teach, when, when your guru or your teacher has felt that you have achieved a certain level of self-realization and a certain level of, of understanding, um, of whatever it is that you're learning through that teacher, they bless you and then they give you a sacred name. Um, or it's a sacred name that they were given to give to you, um, from, from your guides. And so my name is Idan Shakti Isvarasavrupa. It's a Sanskrit name um, that means she who fully embodies the sacred feminine, the red dakini. Um, and that is my name, Isis. That's why my name is Isis. Nice. It's my acronym for my Sanskrit name. <laughs> uh-huh. Also the Egyptian but goddess. Right? There's Also the Egyptian goddess, yeah. yes. So, there we go. <laughs> yes. And so... And so um, he kind of told me, um, he kind of winked at me when he told me I was the only living red bikini. And I, I winked back at him. I said, that's only because my hair is red, isn't it? And he's like, <laughs> no, it's not just because your hair is red. And I said, well, why are you cursing me with this? And here's the thing, because it's actually in my, back then I was thinking this was, this was all tied into that, you know, me running away going, oh my mm-hmm. God, that is so not my path. <laughs> Leave me alone. I just wanted to... <laughs> Leave me alone. I just wanted to get fixed. How dare you completely destroy my perception about myself. Don't do that. (laughs) So, you know, it was a very humbling and and, and a very, very humbling experience. And as we got to, as I got to know who this bikini is, the red bikini is the, um, she's the guardian of the abyss. Um, the great abyss that all men have to, or women have to tip themselves into to lose themselves in order to find themselves. Mm. The abyss can be considered um, the worst of any tragedy. It can be considered the worst of the worst that any person can go through. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the valley through the shadow of death, mm-hmm. um, you know, walking through hell. 
and coming back out. That's the abyss. The abyss is something that we all have to encounter at some point when we want to transmute or transform ourselves. Mm-hmm. And a bikini is known as a sky dancer. She, what he meant, um, what a sky dancer does is they can travel transversely. They can travel parallel universes. There's no place that a bikini can't go once mm-hmm. they've received their um, acceptance and the, all the gates have opened. So you can go pretty much anywhere. And in fact, the bikini is actually the only entity that can. And the red bikini holds a very special space in the abyss. She, her temple and her domicile is in the center of the abyss. And she guards it. She protects it. And nothing, not gods, not demons, nothing can get past without her approval, without her say-so. So it's a very it's a very much a warrior-like position, which is mm-hmm. why I said earlier, there is a certain situation where a warrior and a protector mm-hmm. is actually come into play because that's actually what she does. Mm-hmm. She's very, very, very dynamic, very energized, and she that's the symbolic place that she holds. So when he told me that I embodied that, that's why I wanted to run because there's no way in heck <laughs> I want that job. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's a lot of responsibility. Then. But then he told me, he said, but you already have that mm-hmm. job. Look at everything you do. You mm-hmm. are a protector. Look at how how strongly you protect mm-hmm. others. Look at how you guard and you protect people from going too far when they start traveling, when they start going too deep in, into the wrong direction, what do you do? You course correct and you do transmute everyone you've touched, everyone that comes to you, you transmute them and you leave them in a much higher resonating space than you found them. As far as I'm concerned, you're who she is. Wow. And that was really sobering to me. Mm-hmm. It was really ick. <laughs> wow. So that's already all lined up for me. Aww. Okay. So all I, you know, so it took me a few years to where I could actually say that that's who I am. It was a very hard process for me to go because it felt egotistical and sure. it felt too big and it felt like this huge thing. It's like, it's like, no, you know, no, no. And so I ran, ran, ran and tried to keep myself small and tried to, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was a very hard process for me to actualize and step into that. And I think all of my journey um, this whole time has really been to be okay with an embodiment and say, yeah, that's who I am. I am what we all are, just facets. And I happen to be that facet over there. Nice. <laughs> and now today you provide private sessions, coaching, and intensive for clients. Tell a little, tell me a little bit about what you offer to your clients. Um, for my clients, I offer private sessions, one-on-one sessions, hour-long sessions. Um, I can do. We do intensives. I do hold intensive retreats either here at my seven-acre retreat, or we go someplace very beautiful to host a retreat to get people out of their their space and and kind of come into and places what I call um, no time or um, divine time so that they can create a life or heal um, trauma in a way that just honors their entire process. And I also offer um, 90-day breakthroughs, um, giving people the opportunity to focus on any area of either life or business that they want to focus on, as well as six-month um, transformational mentorship. Very nice, very nice. And are you available for speaking or workshops as well? 
I would love to do some speaking and workshops. That would be lovely. I'm kind of getting myself back ramped up back here. So. Okay. Because <laughs> yes, you got to add that to the list too. You, you know, you, all these other things you have going on. We're going to add speaking and workshops on top of that too. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> because why not? <laughs> okay, so now you've completely humbled me and I'm just like feeling really small again. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Not even a little bit. Not even a little. You're, there's no way. You have too much work to do to be small. Don't even try it. I have too much work to do to be small. We all do. That's we right. We have a lot of work here. No doubt. And so it's good work, though. Fun. Yes. For those listeners who really resonated with you and your message tonight, how can they find you and reach out to you? You can visit me on my website. It's in the middle of being redesigned now, so please mind don't mind all the the under construction stuff here and there <laughs> but you can find me at isisjade.com i-s-i-s-j-a-d-e.com um i'm there and you can also find me on facebook and twitter and i'm pretty much everywhere now okay <laughs> no more hiding see that's what i no more hiding <laughs> no more hiding <laughs> well isis thank you so so much for spending oh, oh my goodness two hours thank you uh, that, yeah, we spent two hours. Yeah, this is the longest interview I've ever done. Uh, so oh all goodness. at one time, and uh, but I, I was very valuable. I, I enjoyed every minute of it, and I you provided so much value for the listeners. There's there's just so much information there, and thank you so much for just sharing yourself, your story, your wisdom. Really, really appreciate it. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much for spending so much time with me, Angela. I love you so much. I this love you phenomenal. too. Phenomenal. Yes, yes, yes. And transpersonal radio oh listeners, I just want to share with you uh, again. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. Although you can sort of fast forward or rewind or do whatever you need to do, break this up. But this is some great information to listen to while you're on the treadmill or while you're working or while you're doing your walk or driving or whatever you're doing, make sure you spend some time really going over this this interview with ISIS because so much, so much valuable information. And definitely go to her website, isisjade.com. Check out what she has going on. So many wonderful uh, workshops, information, classes, one-on-ones, so much information. And, and, and really, it's worth your time. Thank you very much for listening. And that's it for this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trans Transpersonal Radio. If you'd like to suggest a future future topic or be a guest, visit transpersonalradio.com. Call the hotline at 619-800-6057 or like our page, facebook.com slash transpersonalradio.